0: Good morning, uh, my name is Jonathan Nash, really excited to be here. I think Randy is somewhere on a motorcycle, so we're gonna uh, just pray for him, um, You know that he is safe and uh, healthy and happy as he does that. Um, but I'm really glad to get to bring the word um, to all of us, including myself, I was praying this morning to the Lord, like literally, Lord, I think my prayer is that my own ears would hear what I have to say first, which is good, because I think my ears are closest to my mouth than any of y'all, so hopefully we can, uh, we can accomplish that. Um, but the Lord has some amazing things for us today in our, in our word. We're in this uh, series in Philippians, and it has been an encouragement to me. It has, been, um, it has given me courage, which is, I think, what that word encouragement means. It has brought courage into my heart. And so that's my prayer, is that as we leave today, you will be more free and more encouraged, and with more courage to go out into uh, whatever it is the rest of your week has. So we can we can all pray together that that, that, that is true by the power of the Spirit. So I was um, I was scrolling through my news feed. Uh, this is probably two weeks ago, and I saw a, a, an article. There was a new study that came out that analyzed at what uh, stage of life and at what age people are most happy. I don't know if any of y'all saw this. It was a pretty big study, they, they interviewed thousands of people, asked them all kinds of questions, people from young children all the way uh, to very you know, elderly people. And uh, they determined uh, a particular stage of life and a particular age at which you know, point they believe people are most happy. And, you know, probably right now, we're all kind of trying to guess about what stage of life that would be. You know, maybe maybe you think it's nine years old, right? Is that kind of the prime stage of life? You know, you kind of got the whole world in front of you. So, you know, you might feel like you got a lot of responsibilities, but clearly, you know, you don't have that many responsibilities at nine years old. Um, You're free. You're playing with your friends. You know, the the worst thing that can happen is you fall and scrape your knee on your bike. Or maybe it's your 20s. Right, Like your early 20s, you're out of college, you're in that first job that you're maybe kind of getting excited about. Um, You got plenty of time with your friends, time to travel. uh, Right, The world is your oyster. Maybe it's middle school. No, no one ever thought middle school was the best. (laughs) Never. Maybe it's retirement. Maybe that is kind of the, the period that you're looking forward to or you're in and you're like, yeah, this, like this is the sweet spot. Well, it's actually none of those. The, the age at which this study determined most people are most happy is age 36, which is really interesting, right? So the, this, this time period from about 32 to 42, they said is the stage of life that people are the happiest. They're the most fulfilled. And so what's happening right now in every single one of our brains is we are all now comparing ourselves to that, aren't we? We're all going, wait a second, is that, first of all, am I in that age and am I happy? Am I the happiest I'm ever gonna be? Am I, am I the happiest I have been? We're all wrestling with this because something really matters, right? This idea of being happy and fulfilled actually matters to us. That's why we're all thinking about this right now. It's why we find a study like this so fascinating is because, in fact, the reason I compare, anytime I'm comparing, Anytime I'm fixating on something, anytime I'm thinking and kind of analyzing or obsessing to try to figure something out, that is always directly connected to something that matters for me, right? That's just, that's just basic, that, that I'm gonna pour my thoughts and my energy and my attention into something that matters for me. And I think deep down, every one of us wants to, to know, am I okay? Am I gonna be okay? Right, and, and this idea of am I happy, am I fulfilled is so deeply connected to that. And I think that's actually how the Lord made us. So in this series in Philippians, uh, and even especially last week, um, we've, we've seen this phrase Paul has, has pulled up a couple times, and Randy really referenced it last week. It's when Paul says, what has happened to me? Right, he, he's talking about what has happened to me. And I think Randy invited all of us to, to consider that question, what has happened to you? And this morning I wanna add Two more questions, what is happening to you? What has happened to you? What is happening to you? And what's gonna happen to you? What has happened to you? What is happening to you right now? And what's gonna happen to you? Those are all three areas in which I'm gonna ask that question, am I okay? Am I gonna be okay? Am I happy? Am I fulfilled? And so what Paul has to say to us this morning meets us in all three of those places. So please read with me if you've got your Bibles, open it up to Philippians chapter one. We are starting um, right where we left off. In fact, I think it's like continuing the same sentence in the original Greek that Paul was saying in Philippians chapter one. So we're gonna be in verse 18b. Yes, you might not have known it, but verses in the Bible can have A's and B's. We're in verse 18b and I'm gonna read uh, through verse 26. This is the word of the Lord. So convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. This is the word of the Lord. What an amazing passage of scripture. What has happened, what is happening and what's going to be, right? What has happened to you? What is happening to you? What's gonna happen to you? For Paul, it was all one thing. It was one thing for Paul. Love is what happened to Paul. For Paul, what had happened to him, what was happening to him, and what was going to happen to him, it was all one thing. It was love. Paul was what, excuse me, love was what had happened to Paul. And what's amazing about that is a lot of other things had happened to Paul. Prisons beatings, shipwrecks, snake bites, lashings, stonings, hunger, blindness. Every single one of those things I just said had already happened to Paul at this point in his life. He was sitting in prison with that kind of history behind him and yet the thing that he anchors himself in, that he was, is, and is going to be is love. The defining event of his life, the moment in his life when everything changed when he was unmade and made again, and that was the moment when love happened to him. And so this morning we are talking about love. I'm gonna run out of I'm gonna run out of room. I gotta lower that. <laughs> we got a lot. We got a lot of places we're going this morning. We gotta make room in the board. All right. Love is what had happened to Paul. Amidst all the other things, this is the main thing that he says he's anchored in. His foundation is in. We know Paul's. Uh, dramatic conversion, right? He's on the road, he's on a donkey, and, and literally this bright light and this booming voice that was so loud and so bright that it knocked him off his donkey and knocked everybody else that was with him on the ground. This came to him. And Jesus, from on high, said, Paul, Paul. He called his name. And in that moment, love got Paul. Paul. Love captured Paul, and it absolutely transformed everything else in his life. It blinded him. Just think of the imagery, right? It physically blinded him, but also the sense of he became blind to who he was before, and he had new eyes to see who he was gonna be. And Jesus says to him, Paul, Paul, stand up. I have appointed you to be my instrument to the whole world. Love had happened to Paul. And so in verse nine of Philippians one, I think this is the, the section we started this whole series in. In verse nine of Philippians one, Paul can say this, my one prayer, my one prayer for you, which is you, my one prayer for you is that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment. He's saying something really interesting there that your love would abound, but it would abound in knowledge and discernment, which means your love is something that keeps happening. Your love keeps happening to you because it allows you to now know and discern, and then we'll talk about this, go do and be differently. So love happened to you, it's happening to you, and it's gonna happen to you because it actually can form and reform you and transform you into something different, the way you think, the way you act. So this is what we're gonna say to start this morning is that love is the foundation for us. It's what grounds us. And whatever you're grounded in determines how you see your past, how you see your present, and how you see your future. Whatever you are grounded in, it determines, it changes, it transforms how you see your past, how you see your present, and how you see your future. We live... um, Really close to Fort Negley. Does everybody in here know that there's a place in Nashville called Fort Negley? People aware of Fort Negley? Okay, maybe one of you. No, know, a couple, couple of you. Fort Negley is amazing. Y'all should go check it out. It's uh, we live pretty close to it, the Napier community where my family and I live. It's a you know a short jog up the street. I guess depending on how fast you jog. Um, but it's a really cool place. Fort Negley at one point was considered the most formidable, powerful, strong, large interior fort in the entire continental United States. Okay, when it was built, it's a Civil War fort, it was built um, to defend the city of Nashville uh, from Southern armies coming up from the South. When it was built, it was the largest and most formidable formidable fort um, in the interior of the continental United States. What made Fort Negley formidable and powerful and strong wasn't just its walls, right? The, The strength of a fort's walls is part of what makes it strong. What really makes a fort strong is its position, right? Where it's located, how it's positioned. And so Fort Negley was positioned very intentionally. It was picked on top of St. Cloud Hill, which was one of the highest points, and and it had this view for anyone coming up from the south, and it also could defend anything behind it. That's what we're talking about when we say that love grounds us and love grounded Paul. That our foundation in love is something that grounds us, I don't even think I I didn't even lower it enough, is something that grounds us now for what's behind us and what's coming in front of us. It's what we're grounded in that is strong for us. It's like a wall, it's like fortress walls. And so when I look back, and this is kind of what Randy uh, led us to, when I look back into my past and my memories, Love is grounding me, right? When I'm looking back into my past, I'm grounded in love. It transforms what I see, and also when I look up into my future, just kinda pretend this keeps going, right? Into my future, I'm grounded in love. And so in my past, in the way I view what has happened to me, and in my future when I'm asking the question, what's gonna happen to me? Love is what's grounding me and it's keeping me fortified and safe. And so when Paul prays that your love may abound more and more and more and more, your love may grow and abound, he's saying, I want love to keep happening to you. We want love to continue to happen to us. And we actually believe that this is the journey of being a disciple of Jesus. When you're on a journey with someone, when you're following someone, you're becoming more and more like them, right? So the journey of being a disciple of Jesus, which if you know Jesus, this is a journey every single one of you is on. If you do not know Jesus, it's a journey he's inviting you to begin to come onto with him. It's a journey of letting love keep more and more happening to you. So the first thing it does when love continues to happen to you is it redeems your memory. I'm not gonna say too much about this because Randy talked about this a lot last week, how, how our memories are what form us. When I answer that question, what has happened to me? The answer to that question is defining who I am right now. And I hope you took Randy's advice last week and this week spent some time asking with the Lord, what has happened to me? What are the the wounds that I carry? What are the things that have happened to me in my past that are forming me the same as we believe Paul is saying love should form us? And so when I'm grounded in love, when that's my defense, I look back on my memory and my memory becomes redeemed. I am now no longer a product of what's happened to me. In fact, suffering becomes not something that's necessarily against me. It's something that's for Jesus. Last week, we read that Paul looked at his suffering in prison. He said, I know. In fact, he says, I want you to know what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. That's redeemed memory. That's memory, that's looking into what has happened to him, grounded in the love of Jesus, and he can say, what that was that happened to me? It wasn't even really about me. It, it happened to me, and it hurt, and he, he very much lived presently in the pain of that. He didn't ignore it, but he also went beyond that, and he said, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. It wasn't for me. It wasn't about me. It was for Jesus. And so he says, yes, and I will, this is verse 18b and 19, yes, and I will continue to rejoice for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. You see that? What has happened to me advanced the gospel in the past and now it's gonna turn out for my deliverance. My suffering is not against me, it's for Jesus. And so it becomes not even about me. And then in verse 20, he adds another little tidbit about this because he talks about shame. And shame is something that I think we all know about. And it always comes from this. There's always something that I'm remembering. There's some experience that I had. There's something I'm engaging with in myself that begins to make me think about myself differently. And so Paul says, when I look back at the things that have happened to me, verse 20, I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage. Paul knows that even he can look at his time in prison, his, his experience of being in prison and can, and can have shame that I've done something wrong. I am something wrong. I'm not enough. If I was enough for Christ, I wouldn't be here. If I was enough for Christ, he would have saved me from these people, right? He would have protected me and allowed me to have a, have a pulpit, right? Freedom, travel the whole world like I'd been doing. And instead, what's happened? No, I'm stuck, I'm in prison. But he doesn't see it that way. He says, I will no longer be ashamed because my memory is now redeemed. I'm not connecting what's happened to me, to me. I'm not connecting it to me. I'm saying it's not about me. It's about what Christ has done. And so he can look back and he can say, in no way will I be ashamed, right? For now, as always, Christ is gonna be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So you see how what, what, what's happening here, right? Love is what grounded Paul. Love is working up into Paul and now it's working back into his memory. I know this is getting kind of crazy. It's working back into his memory, but what it, where where is all his words going? They're going to the future. So love comes into us, it grounds us, it fortifies us, it allows us to redeem our memories, but then Paul is talking all about his future. And listen to what he says about his future. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. Let's unpack that a little bit because there's some amazing things Paul is saying that are true about him right now because of his being grounded in love and having his memories redeemed. The first thing he says is I expect and hope I eagerly expect and hope. If I took away eagerly expect, and all we had here was I hope, how would that change that sentence? Think about the way we use that word hope. I hope that you know we get to go to the game. I hope we get tickets to that. You know, oh, I hope uh, you know she finally comes home on time, or right, he finally does the thing for me that I've been wanting him to do. We we use this word hope all the time to depict things that. I mean, it's, it, you know, it's kind of fatalistic. Like, maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't, but I definitely hope something, you know, a particular thing happens. That's not what Paul's saying. He says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed. For Paul, hope was something that was certain because hope was grounded in promises. Hope was grounded in certain things, absolutely certain things he knew was gonna happen. They just hadn't happened yet. And so he's not saying I hope in the sense of I'm wishfully thinking. He's really saying, I so, so look forward to. Because when we say that, that means something different, right? When I say I so look forward to when, it means that I know it's gonna happen. I'm just waiting for it to happen. That is something that has happened to Paul in his present because of this being grounded in the love of Jesus. He's grounded in the character of God, in the character of his savior that has made promises to him that he will always be with him. He will never leave him or forsake him. And so Paul can say, I eagerly expect and hope. I'm not wishfully thinking, I'm waiting. That's why the Bible talks about waiting. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint because I wait for the Lord. I wait for his promises to be true, right? And in his word, I hope. I'm waiting, I'm waiting for it to happen. And that's what Paul has. The second thing he's got is he's got sufficient courage. He says, I eagerly expect and hope, I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage. Let me just tell you, I'm so glad it says sufficient courage and not perfect courage. It's a small thing, but that matters, right? That he says, I will have sufficient courage, which means I'll have just enough courage for the job. Doesn't mean I won't have any fear, doesn't mean my courage won't feel like it's faltering, but because, me, because I'm grounded in the love of Jesus, grounded in his promises, hoping in all his promises to become true, I now have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body. And so the third thing, this leaves Paul ready for anything. He's hoping, he's expecting, he's got sufficient courage, and now he's ready because what does he then talk about? Whether by life or by death. Right? Verse 21, for, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. When Paul looks into his future, live? Christ. That's the little Greek, uh, I don't know. So I learned that in seminary, I think. That's Christ. Live? Christ. Die? Christ. It doesn't matter. I'm ready. I'm grounded. I've got sufficient courage to move forward. For to me to live is Christ. To die is gain. So when we look back and we think, what has happened to me? When we look in our present, we say, what is happening to me? What it means to be grounded, what it means to be fortified in the love of Jesus, and to have that, remember, growing more and more in us, is it means that the things that have happened to us and the things that are happening to us can actually turn out for our deliverance. Paul says, I know that what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I Actually, you know what I really think is behind that? I'm not gonna say I can translate this better than the people that translated it, but. I think what Paul is really saying is, what has happened to me is my deliverance. What has happened to me is actually the way the Lord is delivering me. Because he's pressing me, he's forming me, he's he's picking me up and putting me in that fortified place of his love more and more and more and more. Because it's a journey, right? It's a journey of growing and maturing and walking in him. And so Paul, with all the things that had happened to him, can look at his life and can say, what has happened to me can actually become and is actually becoming my deliverance. And so I have eager expectation and hope, I have sufficient courage, and I'm ready for anything, whether by, the, whether by life or by death. So when, uh, when my wife and I decided, um, decided, it's funny, it's funny when we talk about like, oh, we decided to do this. When I, we decided and just felt like the Lord was just moving us uh, to move and begin the ministry that we have in an Napier. And by the way, I would say uh, insert yourself in any decision you've made in your life. You can just put yourself in, in the story with me because any time you have made a decision to move into something, we trust and believe the Lord is guiding us, the Lord is leading us to be in that place. So for my wife and I, when, when we decided and when the Lord led us um, to, uh, to, to live and move into the Napier community and begin to, to work and do ministry, this is five or six years ago, um, we really, we didn't really know what we were doing and we didn't really know what God was going to do. But what the Lord began to work in us as we you know, were formed more and more into that place of his love and grounded more and more into that sure place of the fact that he loved us. What the Lord began to do is he began to birth something in us that I think we see happening here with Paul. And this is really now getting out into what will this do for you in your future? And what it did is it began to make us something I think we see happening here with Paul and that is self-forgetful. We began to be more self-forgetful people and what that looked like is it began to mean that we were, became more and more less concerned about how we were doing what the Lord had called us to do or were we good enough to do what the Lord had called us to do or even were we doing the right things? I wonder if you've ever asked yourself that question, am I doing enough? Am I doing the right things? Are the things I'm doing actually doing enough? The Lord began to really just strip all of the me out of that and the us out of that. And what we see here in Paul is the same thing. He says, I have a desire to be with the Lord and I have a desire to remain and be fruitful with you. But what I know is that for me to to, to do the Lord's work, to do ministry out into the world, it's more necessary that I remain here. And so his desires, his desires begin to change. His thinking about himself begins to change in that he starts to think about himself less and less and who he's thinking about is the people he's called to. So this is the last thing that I think this kind of life that Paul is inviting us into, this life of being grounded in the love of Jesus, is it begins to make us self-forgetful and able to now be poured out into the lives of others. You see that? Do you see that, that when I begin to have my memories of what has happened to me redeemed, and I'm not thinking about them as much anymore, I'm not obsessing over my shame about them, it becomes less and less about me in my past, my present, then in my future, I can actually now be poured out for the sake of others. And one thing that having a false control begins to do is it is it really forces you to to, to more and more fight for control. So the more that I begin to to falsely believe, like I can control all these things, I can can make my uh, past mean something different for me, I can change my present, and by golly, I can change my future. The more we double down on false control, it actually traps us in having to be more and more and more in control. And Paul is offering a completely different way. He's saying, as you go out grounded in the love of the Lord, you will be stripped away of those things. You'll be stripped away even of yourself to the point where you can just say, Lord, I'm here. I'm not needing to do these things for myself. I'm not needing to do these things to to change my story. I'm just faithful and ready and willing to be used by you. He doesn't just redeem our memories, he then begins to redeem the desires of our present and redeem the actions that we do, the things we go and do for others. And for you, that starts with your family, that starts with your friends, it starts in the most like close circle to yourself. But then as you begin to move out and as you begin to say, Lord, what are you calling me to farther and farther outside myself? How are you calling me more and more to give up control in my money? give up control in my time, give up control in who I wanna be friends with and what relationships I wanna have, give up control in where do I wanna go in my job. It doesn't mean those things stop being important and good things for you, but I give up the control of needing them to define me. I now become free to do what Paul does, which is just say, whether I live or die, I know I wanna be with the Lord, but Lord, you've called me right here and right now, and so I'm gonna freely walk in what it is you've put in front of me freely listen to you and be formed by you and change so that I can then be poured out for the sake of others. And you know who I think modeled this perfectly um, was our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you remember uh, when Jesus was in a moment of conflict, when he was in a moment of suffering, was he, when he was in a moment of looking back on his life and seeing things, looking presently at where he was and looking into his future. That was the garden of Gethsemane. And what he did in that moment is he came before the Lord and he prayed and he said, Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. In other words, Father, I'm gonna gonna tell you what it is that I want. But then he goes, but not my will, but yours be done. Do you see how Jesus himself being formed in the love of his father for him was able even to say the two things that are hardest to say, which is number one, this is what I want. Truly, deeply, this is what I want. I'm not gonna hide from it. I'm gonna bring it to you, Lord. And also, not what I want, but what you want. And then to take a step forward in that place so for us, what actually begins to happen, again, pretend I actually gave enough space and we had this kind of like expanding view of ourselves, expanding view of the love of the Lord, is the cross of Jesus actually begins to grow more and more for us. The more I'm formed in the love of the Lord, the bigger and bigger the cross becomes, the bigger the sacrifice of Jesus where he he even had to give up what he wanted. He wanted to redeem us and then just in his human self, he didn't wanna have to suffer. And he said, not my will, but yours be done. Now use me, Lord. Use me for your sake. So it's because of the cross, because of Jesus modeling this for us and then pouring his love into us to empower us to do this, we can actually say with Paul what feels so impossible there in verse 18b, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. I want Midtown to be a place of people that say, yes, I will continue to rejoice. In my past suffering, in my present suffering, in my fears of the future, yes, I will continue to rejoice. And my prayer is that as you move more and more into that that lifestyle and that posture of continually rejoicing, grounded in the love of your Father, that this community would be on mission with Jesus in a completely new way. That we would be willing to give up some of the control that actually traps us and hinders us from being used by the Lord and say, Lord, it's all yours. I've forgotten myself, please use me. Let me pray. Uh, Jesus, um, we didn't even talk about it, but it's so encouraging that in this passage, Paul says, uh, through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit, this will happen. And so Lord, we now stop and we acknowledge that nothing that was just said, whatever truth was in it, Lord, nothing that is true that was just said is gonna be done without uh, the, the supply of your Spirit. And that as your people pray, and as we ask, as we submit ourselves to you in prayer, that you supply the Spirit more and more. And so Lord, supply that Spirit. Supply the Holy Spirit to form us more and more in your love and then release us more and more in your love to ground us more and more in your love and then shoot us out as those that are so loved that we can't help but share that love, that are so free, we can't help but share that freedom. And Lord, with this place, this community of people, uh, the body of Christ here at Midtown Fellowship would be transformative in the world. We believe that's true. And so we ask for it with hope and expectation. In Jesus' name, amen.